Thank you, choir. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he rose again. Thank you for reminding us of the wondrous cross. If, um, if some of our teenagers fall asleep this morning, it's understandable. Pokies, no, I'm not, I'm not going to fall asleep again. You're not going to fall asleep again? Is that what you mean? Oh, you weren't asleep. You were praying. Oh, okay. Deep in meditation. Good, good, good. Uh, some of you have said, oh, was, I'm sure it was so hard for you, you know, going to Centrifuge and, and, and being a counselor for six days. And, and then uh, several of you, Nancy Hogue and, and Jamie Jones and others have said, I'm sure it was much harder for Morgan, uh, who had to take care of the, the three uh, rascals here while I was gone. Uh, one day I sat down at lunch in the cafeteria at, at North Greenville, and they had great food for a, a college university, much better than, than my college when I was a student. And I was sitting down with like a, a pork chop and some rice and some vegetables for lunch, you know, on like Tuesday, and I didn't have to cook it, I didn't have to clean up after it, and I had no children bugging me uh, the whole time, and I said, don't tell Morgan about this, okay? And Scott and Sarah said, okay, yeah, we got it. So this morning, uh, we're going to start a whole new series for the month of July, as we are reading through the Bible in 2017. We're taking this whole year to kind of just dwell in the Word, to pray through what the Lord has next for us. Uh, someone, you know, I have, I have pastor friends who've asked me, what's your, like, strategic vision? You know, like, what's your plan to, like, revitalize Woodmont, you know, and, and really, what's your strategic church growth plan, you know, and all this stuff? And I said, we're just reading through the Bible. That's it for this year. That's all we're doing. We're just praying and reading through the Bible. We're focusing on loving each other, on getting to know each other, on making sure that we have community and fellowship, on making sure that the, that the worship of, the, of God is exalted in this place and that his word is elevated. Those are kind of our priorities for this year. Uh, all the, the planning and stuff will come later, but um, we're excited just to dwell in God's word throughout this year. So we're, we're in the book of Acts now in the, the New Testament. We've been in Acts for a couple weeks uh, now. We're up to, to chapter eight or nine, I believe. Uh, we're past that now, actually. Um, but to this morning, we're going to be in Acts 8 and 9, and I love the book of Acts so much. It's, it's so unique in the entire Bible. It's the only book of history in the entire New Testament. It tells the, about the spread of the gospel in the early church. It, it's, it's so much more than just history, though. It's the story of, of heroes and, and their adventures. It's about their travels, their ministry, and their theological teachings as well as they were used by God to advance the gospel around the world, the known world at that time. Acts is full of miracles. It's got a, a shipwreck in it. It's got a, a resurrection from the, de the dead. It's, it's full of miracles and, and beatings and riots. It's got jailbreaks in it, miraculous jailbreaks. It's got courtroom drama. And, and this book is, is called Acts of the Apostles. But uh, as you read it, you, you begin to understand that that the Lord God is clearly the main actor in this book, isn't he? It's really the acts of God done through his people. It's God who is acting on, through his people, not just the acts of the apostles, but the acts of God. In chapter 2, we see that God, the Holy Spirit, shows up in a powerful way at Pentecost, right? He literally comes in fire, and he lights a fire in his people as he, he uh, prepares them to, to take the gospel to the whole world. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against them as they go forth with his mission. And from that point on, 
uh, the, the spread is uncontainable. It's amazing how quickly the spread of Christianity happened. We know this from history around the world. So here's some Bible trivia for you, okay? Which biblical author wrote more of the New Testament than any other biblical author? John's a good guess. John's third. Paul's a good guess. Paul is second. In terms of content, yes, Paul wrote 13 books, yes, but in terms of content, number one was Luke. That's right, Luke. Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and Acts is the fourth longest book. Are you Googling it over there? Is that, that's cheating. You can't, you can't Google it. It's, it's true. Uh, Luke is, is the author of more content than any other author in the entire New Testament. Combined, Luke and Acts are longer than all of Paul's letters uh, combined. We know that from Paul's writings that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm not going to do this again. Morgan gave me some water this time, so I'm not going to. I don't have to drink Lynn Becker's this time. Uh, Paul was uh, telling us that Luke was a physician and that he was a companion of Paul's who traveled with him on his missionary journeys. He was a co-laborer. He was a fellow missionary on these journeys. And Luke is brilliant, right? He, his Greek, his writing in, in Luke and Acts is the best example of, of Koine Greek, not only in the New Testament, but in, in the first century. It's excellent writing. And, and most scholars believe that, that Luke was probably a Greek Gentile who was what they call a God-fearer. He, he went to Jewish synagogues, even though he was a Gentile, and he was a God-fearer, but he wasn't a full-blown Jew. And then he was converted to Christianity, probably through uh, Paul's missionary travels, and became a co-laborer with Paul. So Dr. Luke begins the book of Acts, this, this volume of a, it's two-volume set, Luke and Acts. He begins this volume with the risen Christ appearing to his disciples. He appeared for 40 days after his resurrection, and right before he ascends into heaven, he says this. Let's look at, at chapter 1 together. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, the disciples, the 11 disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they still didn't get it. These poor disciples. Luke had just said, he just tells us that the risen Christ had been speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. That was one of his themes, was the kingdom of God. He told all these parables about the kingdom of God. And they still believed that the kingdom of God was some sort of political or, or military power entity. That's, that's never been what the kingdom of God is about. It is about a power, a greater power than any military or any political system in the history of the world. It's a system of love and a power of divine love that is greater than anything. So at this point, the disciples are fired up, right? They, they believe that their rabbi, their leader, the whole founder of this movement had died, that the Romans had won, that they had crucified him and it was over. But now he, he was back. He's, he's risen. He's appeared to, to all these believers. He's defeated death. The Holy Spirit has been promised to come soon. They're going to have the, the comforter, the advocate with them soon. Surely this must be the time for the, the messianic era to begin, where Jesus was finally going to say, all right, Romans, hit the road. We're going to kick them out. Let's grab swords and, and, and revolt against the Romans. But this has never been the point of the kingdom. Any sort of violent overthrow has never been the point of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is actually much bigger than any political revolt 
The kingdom of God is wherever God's will and his reign and his rule are carried out perfectly as they are in heaven. That doesn't come through power militarily or politically. It comes through a spiritual kingdom of love. But Jesus, of course, is loving and patient as always with his disciples. So he doesn't say, you guys are idiots. You don't, you don't get it. He, he says instead in verse 7, he says to him, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Yes, there will indeed be one day where a new Jerusalem will take over the world, where Jesus will reign in the new heavens and the new earth, in a kingdom, a literal kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth where the, the Romans will not win, and neither will the Americans or the British or any other country, but the kingdom of God will reign supreme. And here's the key verse in this, this whole thing. In verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is such a, a powerful proclamation, and it's more than just a proclamation. It's a prophecy. He says, you will be receiving power. You will be my witnesses all around the whole world. And, and the way he describes this is concentric circles, right? He starts with Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Andy whipped up a little graphic for me. He's, he's handy like that. So Jerusalem is the city that they're in now. This is where the movement began. This is where Peter would become the leader of the church. This is where Jesus was crucified. This is where the, the power of the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin was all based, right there in Jerusalem, right? And then what? Out from there is Judea. That's basically Israel, kind of their geographic location. And then Samaria, going out further. That's where the northern kingdom of Israel used to be, you know, a thousand years prior, right? This is moving in concentric circles, and then finally to the ends of the earth. In our missions team here at Woodmont, we've talked about making a strategy in the way that we view how we do missions here at Woodmont. We've talked about making, uh, you know, some, some priorities here in Green Hills, in Nashville, in our hometown. Go to that next slide there, Mark. Do we have that? Our home city is our Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is right here in Green Hills. Here's a question for you. Would Green Hills suffer if Woodmont Baptist wasn't here? I think so. I think so. Would they miss us? Do, does Woodmont make a difference in our city, in our area, in our neighborhood? I think so. But, but we need to be conscious of that and seek to make more and more of a difference here, to bless our neighbors, to be good neighbors in this area and beyond and to have a real heart for Nashville. I believe this church has a heart for Nashville. I love that. And then moving beyond our home city, what would be the next level? Our state. This is why we do things like the Golden State Missions Offering for the TBC. This is why we support uh, you know, conference centers and adult homes and, and children's homes in Tennessee all across the state. We want to see God do great things here in the state. This is why we pray for our governor and our state leaders, right? And then going beyond that, what would be our Samaria? Our nation, right? Kind of our, our, our nation, uh, the national level would be our Samaria. We want to do things in this country and see the Lord do great things in the United States of America to, to, to bring revival to this country, right? That's something we should be praying for. 
And we want to see from, you know, Portland to Miami and from, you know, Bangor to L.A. We want to see all kinds of, of God things happening in this country. But beyond that, we want to see to the ends of the earth. We feel like God's called us to be missionaries to the world, right? To help spread the gospel in areas where the gospel has not yet penetrated. When you give to the cooperative program, to, to global missions offerings, it helps send missionaries to the 1040 window, to areas like Greece, where Eric and Diana Tichner are, who are witnessing to Syrian refugees who've never heard the gospel before, and they are responding in droves. It's amazing what the Lord is doing in the refugee movement and in, in that 1040 window. So this is kind of a, the strategy that Jesus sets up here for us, concentric circles. I, I love that, that model. I think it's very powerful and effective. So after that, we're told that the gospel is going to keep spreading to the ends of the earth. Then look at verse 9. When Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, the ascension. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. I, I love this picture, the disciples just staring up blankly like, oh no, there goes our leader. Now what do we do? <laughs> I, I remember vividly coming home from the hospital with our first child, with Jude. You know, driving so nervously, you know, going like five miles under the speed limit the whole time, just sweat, you know, and then pulling into our driveway. With, with this baby and, and Morgan and I getting out and, and walking into the house and looking at each other like, oh no, like what do we do now? Like there's no nurses on call, no one's bringing us food anymore when we, you know, just pick up the phone and, and call for our order. There's, there's no nursery to send the baby to so we can get some sleep, right? It, this, is, this is our baby now and it's up to us to, to raise this child. It's, everything had changed at that point, right? Well, this is essentially Jesus saying to his disciples, this is your baby now. This is your baby. Go, run with it. Take this thing and, and tell the world about it. And they're just staring into heaven. So God in his mercy and in his grace sends two angels to say, quit staring. <laughs> go, go and make it happen. The story continues in, in Acts. This, this, this beautifully sets up the story of Acts. Now go, it's up to you. The, the story shows us the, the, the dramatic fulfillment of what Jesus and the prophets had foretold, that, that the, the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit shows up at, at Pentecost, and the apostle Simon Peter steps up, and he fulfills Christ's calling when Christ told him to feed my sheep, right? When he gave him the keys to the kingdom, Peter says, oh, that's what this was about. And he preaches this amazing sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 people join the church that day. That's a good Sunday, isn't it? He delivers uh, this incredible sermon, and the Lord just moves in power. And the baby church continues to multiply and grow rapidly through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have this amazing sense of unity. They share all they have. They're eating together. They're fellowshipping together. They're worshiping together every day. And the, the Lord moves in power. Peter does miracles. He heals a lame man. And he and John go and testify before the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities. They ordain deacons, right? They say, we can't keep up with, with the numbers that are growing. So they ordain deacons, servants, who are going to help take care of the widows. And, and guys like Philip 
and Stephen are, are, are called as, as uh, deacons, and they step up in amazing ways, not only in just serving the outcast, but also in witnessing to an Ethiopian official and to the Samaritans. And Deacon Stephen, uh, he ends up being martyred for his faith on fire. Stephen starts proclaiming Christ so boldly and performs so many miraculous signs in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit that the authorities in Jerusalem are so upset by Stephen, they drag him outside the city and they throw stones at him until he is dead, right? Being a deacon is dangerous work sometimes. The whole time they're doing this, we're told that a young man named Saul is standing by, holding the cloaks of the, the rock throwers. He's helping to facilitate this, this murder, this, this martyrdom of one of the holiest people in the entire Bible, Stephen, who is full of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 8 now, verse 1. After the stoning of Stephen, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, didn't Jesus say something about going to Judea and Samaria? Oh, this is all part of his plan, isn't it? Hard times come, persecution comes, and yet it fulfills the plan of God. Isn't that amazing? So they're scattered into Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation. They must be devout because the Romans would have hated that. They, and the Jewish authorities. They made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Who was this guy, Saul? Why is, why is he doing this? We'll get to that in a second, but look at verse 4. This is fascinating too. In verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered in Judea and Samaria went about preaching the word. They weren't just scattered and hiding. They were scattered fulfilling the mission that God gave them to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. It's amazing. Well, Saul, some of you may know that this young, ambitious Jewish leader Saul is the same guy who will go on to become the greatest missionary of all time. He is the greatest missionary of all time. He will start going by his Roman name, Paulus, Paul, and he will plant churches all across the Greco-Roman world, the whole known civilization at that time. And then he will correspond with these churches in letters through the Holy Spirit who inspires him to write them. And 13 of those letters will become part of our holy scriptures by the grace of God and for his glory. Saul was a Greek Jew. He was from the, the, the university town of Tarsus up in Asia Minor. He was a part of the, the, the Pharisee sect of Jews. You know, the Pharisees were the most legalistic and the, the strictest group of Jews that there was. The, the Pharisees added laws to the laws, right? They added rules to the rules to the rules to the rules. They were so concerned with keeping the rules. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament, but they added over a thousand more that you had to do. They, they were concerned with preserving a pure form of Judaism. They were fundamentalists, you could say, in one sense of the word. And Saul was brilliant. He was energetic. He was incredibly ambitious and capable. And he studied the law in Jerusalem 
with one of the greatest rabbis of the entire first century, Gamaliel. You can still read his writings. He's one of the most famous rabbis to this day. Pick up the story in chapter 9 now, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So by this point in the story, Saul is an officially sanctioned and licensed enforcer. He's, he's a, a, an officially, uh, official persecutor of the Christian sect that he believes is so far foreign to the pure form of Judaism. He's threatening to kill anyone who belongs to the way. What's the way? This is the new way of salvation that God had forged to make his people right with him again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. This Jesus Christ is the one who said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Saul later writes in, in the Bible, we have this, that at this time in his life, he was zealously persecuting the church. I love the way that Warren Wearsby writes about this in his commentary. He says that if you were to ask Saul, why are you doing this? What's your problem, Saul? He would say something like this. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you really expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? The Christ? According to our law, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. They're, they're anathema to God. According to our law, God would take that cursed person and condemn them. Would God, holy God, take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan, not from God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic, pure Jewish faith. Pick it up in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. You know Damascus from the news, right? It's in Syria. It's the same Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul had been arresting Christ's followers, but now he himself is arrested by Christ. Saul had staked his entire life and his whole vocation and career on the fact that this imposter Messiah was dead. His disciples had faked his resurrection. But now he sees the living Jesus with his own eyes, and he hears the clarion voice of Christ with his own ears. His whole world, all of his structures that he had built his life on came tumbling down around him in one moment. That's not a bad place to be, though, is it? It's not a bad place to be. Forced to accept reality as it actually is is not a bad place to be. Forced to, to admit that you were wrong and then to give yourself fully in surrender to the only one who's capable of giving life, abundant life back in return for your life, it's not a bad place to be, is it? It's more life than we ever could have imagined. At this point, Paul realizes that 
that all that, that he had devoted years of studying to, all that he'd given his life to, his whole religious system, preserving a, a religious system that he had zealously been persecuting, the system that says that you must be good enough to earn your way in. You must be good enough. You must follow the rules best enough so that you can get into heaven. That all, all of a sudden, it's gone out the window. God was beginning to show Saul that the gospel, the good news, isn't about religious observance. It's not about following the rules. And it sure isn't about being good enough. Because if it was, we're all doomed. It's about a God who is good enough. It's about a God who is good enough for all of us, who's both all-powerful and all-loving, like we said last week. A God who, in his infinite mercy and abundance of grace, forged a way to redeem us back to himself and to redeem this fallen, broken world. This is the start of a whole new life for Paul. It's the start of real life, abundant life for him. He's waking up. This is his conversion from religion to gospel. It's his conversion from earning his way in to being lovingly brought in by the good, good Father, by grace alone. It's his conversion from death to life. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, But rise and enter the city, Christ says, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. This message was just for Saul. The other men saw the light. They, they you know, heard the voice, but it wasn't Paul's imagination. It was very real. But this was a calling only for Saul's life. You know, God had knitted Saul together in his mother's womb and had this special plan for him that he would be the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a plan to use this zealous, brilliant guy to bring his gospel to the nations. So to begin his discipleship journey of following Christ, Jesus says, first, go to Damascus and just trust whoever tells you what to do at that point. We live our lives by faith, not by sight, right? Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. That may sound terrible, but I, I don't think this is punishment at all. I think this is a beautiful time for Saul. This is a time of, of fasting and praying and, and re reveling in his new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sweet time in his life, I think. It's a time of reflecting on his old life and on his new birth into a whole new kind of newness of life. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is a Christian guy who lives in Damascus who God's going to use to help start Saul out on the right path in his calling. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. You know, you can visit Straight Street today still in Damascus. Well, you can't because it's in civil war, but you, Straight Street still exists in Damascus today. Verse 12, And he, Saul, has seen in a vision while he's praying, this is crazy, Paul is praying to Christ, he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this guy. <laughs> 
how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's, he's saying, Jesus, I love you, but I'm not crazy. I know this guy. He's going to kill me. But verse 15, the Lord says to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This Saul, the one who approvingly stood by the murder of Stephen, the, the one who's been zealously rounding up and, and tying up and buying up and, and, and anyone who dared to say Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord is now God's chosen instrument. But it's going to be costly. Saul will, will become Paul and he will be imprisoned too many times to count. He will endure stoning within an inch of his life. He will go through so many beatings and torture in prison and, and in house arrest that, that it would make any of us, if we could see our future, we would say, no thanks, God. He'll be shipwrecked and, and so much more. He'll be mocked and spit on and run out of town so many times. But he says in Romans 8, reflecting on his life under house arrest, Paul writes at the end of his journey, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing. They're so pathetic compared to the glory that is going to be shown to us on that day. That's our hope. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, I'm sure very carefully, <laughs> Saul, brother Saul, he says, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see, I would say, for the first time, he could see. He didn't just regain his sight. He, he could really see now. I have a friend who says, I wonder if, if Saul kept those scales. I wonder if he put them like in a little pouch and carried them around to remind him that he was blind. But now he sees through Jesus Christ. See, his eyes had been transformed into something new. The Holy Spirit had come to dwell inside of him, it says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Evidence of his salvation by grace through his faith in the Lord Jesus. And the first thing that Saul does before he breaks his fast and eats is he follows Christ's example of, of baptism, proclaiming his death and resurrection. You know, one time I was at a church in Alabama where I was serving as youth minister, and we had this guy uh, who was a church planner. He was an African uh, church planner, and he, he planted like almost a thousand churches. He was in his 70s. He was a legend. He, he came and spoke at Beeson Divinity School, then we also had him at, uh, at my church. And I was trying to impress him, I'm sure, with some of my seminary knowledge or something. I was probably 23, 24 or something, and I, I got a chance to talk to him in the hallway, and, and, and we were talking about, you know, seeing church planning as a part of God's plan, and I said, you know, it's a, it's a whole worldview, it's a whole lens that you have to see you know, God's plan through or something like that, you know, and he said, no, 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 my friend, it's not, it's not a new lens that we need. 
He said, we don't need a new lens. That doesn't make our worldview right. We need new eyes. I'll never forget that. We need new eyes. It's not just the lens through which we see the world. It's redeemed, completely regenerated eyes that we need. The eyes of faith. The eyes that come through new birth in Jesus Christ. New eyes that come through the reality of what God's doing in us and through us in this world. That's what we need. Whole new eyes. The gospel changes everything, doesn't it? The gospel changes the way we see our families. The gospel changes the way we see our friends, the way we see our work, the way we see our church, the way we see what we do here in this place. The good news of Jesus Christ changes all of that because it's no longer we who live. We die to our old selves, and now it's Christ who lives in us. From now on, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This changes everything. So here's the question for us today. Have you had a genuine encounter with the risen Christ? If so, then you are changed forever. He's making you new. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new eyes have come. If, if he is alive in us, then the Holy Spirit is moving in us. And our present sufferings, I, I, I don't pretend that we don't have sufferings in this world, but our present sufferings, therefore, are not worth comparing with the glory of Jesus Christ, which one day we will see face to face. Our eyes, along with the rest of us, have been made new. And we can never see things again in the same way. You know, the camp pastor at Centrifuge said, he's a, a pastor in Lebanon, just or down the road here. He said, I've stopped asking people, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I've stopped asking that because in the Bible, everybody says, yeah, sure, I know Jesus. I, I do Christmas or whatever, you know. He started asking people, do you treasure Jesus? Do you treasure Jesus? Have you been so transformed by your encounter with Christ that he becomes ultimate in your life? Does it change the way you live your life? Does Jesus Christ make a difference in the way in which you cook your dinner, <laughs> the way in which you put on your shoes? It should change the way we do everything. Have you surrendered to that reality that Christ is Lord, that he's master of all? Does everything else pale in comparison to knowing Christ as Lord? Do you treasure him above all else? Or are you still trusting in your own goodness? You say, I go to church, I even tithe sometimes. Are you trusting in that to make you right with God? It never will, it never can, never has. Let's close with Paul's own words from Philippians. It won't be on the screen. Just close your eyes and listen to this. Teenagers, don't close your eyes, you'll fall asleep. Listen to this from Philippians 3. Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for the good news that we don't have to be good enough. It's good news that we can't be good enough because You are good enough. God, we fail every day. And yet your grace abounds. May we be transformed by the good news today, Lord. May we show grace to others as we have been shown grace. <clears throat> May we forgive as we have been forgiven. May we love as we have been loved. God, I know so many in this room are suffering today, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But I pray that you would help us to see our sufferings in light of the gospel that the future glory that awaits us is so much greater than anything we go through in this life. God, I pray that we would be transformed forever by our encounter with you. You would help us to see differently, to see others the way you see them. Give us a heart that beats like your heart, O oh God. May Woodmont be a church that is passionate for your name, for your glory, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We boldly proclaim you as Lord in the midst of a culture that says so many other things are Lord God. Help us to stand firm that you are Lord and Savior alone. Thank you for being the way. Thank you for being the truth. Thank you for being the life, the abundant life. Lord, we can never thank you enough, but I pray that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Lives that are given in full surrender to you in return for the grace and the abundant life that you give us. May you give us new eyes today. Change our perspective forever. We love you and pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.